Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On the last episode. The previous night, the staff down at the scene had formed the impression that she was in the water because there was hoof prints right up to the water's edge. You know, the next day when Russell rang and said that he'd seen her at the gun emplacement, all of a sudden that was a hell of a shock because uh, there was the first person who had sighted her. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt, Untold Stories. When I started working on this case for Guilt, Untold Stories, it wasn't an investigation. I didn't set out to solve the mystery but simply to tell the story of Curse's disappearance and keep her memory alive. On the chance, someone could come forward with that crucial piece of evidence. And I feel that we've covered the case in sufficient detail that you can likely form your own opinion. I've been surprised by a recent development, which actually caused me to delay this final episode a couple days. Something that has not necessarily solved the mystery, but I believe needs to be given serious consideration. But before we get into that, let's jump to the Hawke's Bay Police Headquarters in Hastings, New Zealand, where I sit down with the current holder of Curse's file. So my name is Daryl Moore, I'm a detective sergeant here in Hawke's Bay. Yeah. How long have you had the file for? Uh, since the middle of 2020. It must have been a big case for the local police that were here at the time. I mean, how often would someone go missing, a 14-year-old girl, in quite a public place like that? Um, I'd imagine it wouldn't be something that would be too common. No, uh, certainly not. But people do go missing all the time. People reported missing, children reported missing. But 99% of the time they turn up within the first few hours or 24 hours. Um, So, yeah, it's unusual for a person to go missing. I think anywhere in New Zealand, not just in Hawke's Bay, Mm. this was quite a unique case. What would be, um, what's kind of the New Zealand Police standard operating procedure in terms of, do you have a 12-month sort of review just to go over anything that's come forward, or is it more, you know, because it's obviously very cold, is it more at this point it's just as leads come in and you keep the family updated? Uh, All missing people in New Zealand have a yearly review. So a person's reported missing. Every year there is a a formal review, which may only be to have a quick look and say there's nothing new to follow up on. 
so this case gets reviewed at that um, yearly review. However, throughout the four, last 40 years, information is regularly coming in. I would say on average two or three times a year, we just receive information out of the blue about the case. Um, so immediately that goes, it would have gone to Brian Shab, Emmett Lynch, now comes to me. Each time I review it, I look at the file, did we know that information? Is it new? Is it relevant? And take it yeah. to whatever conclusion we can. I could spend full time on this, but I do have a day job. This is on top of that. Um, a lot of it can be shut down fairly quickly. Um, and people come forward with well-intentioned um, giving us information, but often it's not actually that helpful to our inquiry. Someone woke up that had a vivid dream of talking to Cursor and Cursor told them this information. Um, and yes, you smile, but literally that is probably half or three quarters of the information we receive is that sort of airy-fairy information, but we still need to look at it. Is there some credibility to it? Do we know it? Who is the person giving us this information? But unfortunately, someone having a dream and they visualise that she's buried under a tree in central Hawke's Bay, there's limited where we can take it. Other information is very pacific. This person was involved. This is their involvement. This is where Cursor is now. This is where that person is. And obviously, there's a number of leads there that we can then follow up to try and either prove or disprove if that information's true. Unfortunately, particularly now, given the time that's gone by, quite often we just hit a dead end. We're given this information, the people involved are now deceased. We can't really advance that. We just have to say, well, yes, it's an interesting theory. We can't prove or disprove it. Um, but it is all noted on the file, it's recorded in detail, cross-referenced with other information. Yeah, that file must be getting pretty big by now. I mean, I suppose every one of those things would be over 40 years. Yes. Um, compared with other homicides I've worked on, I'm actually surprised how small it is. Well, and actually, um, yeah, that, that would lead into another point, which is the fact that there really isn't to my knowledge of what I've seen and heard, a huge amount of evidence in this case really is there. There's no, a large number. Talk about the things that you can talk about. Um, mm. um, I mean, obviously there was the rope that was found broken with the horse and other than some blood splatter at the time, I mean, is there anything really even above and beyond that? No, uh, obviously we have to realise that back in 1983, Forensics were very different. We didn't have DNA technology, and at that stage it probably wasn't even foreseen as something that was going to be here in the near future. So um, today we rely so heavily on DNA, we rely on cell phones, on electronic technology, CCTV. There is a whole raft of information we can tap into. But back in 83, it was really police officers walking around, knocking on doors, and people relying on their memory yeah. more often than not. I've driven that road so many times, and, <laughs> when I, and I know the bridge, but I didn't, I've never really looked out with any interest. I kind of imagined going over the bridge that I thought the gun placement was going to be down low and it was kind of difficult to see, but I couldn't actually believe how open it is. It's, it's just right there. 
Um, yes. And I don't know if, were there any trees or anything in the way back then, or is it still more or less the same? No, it was very, very different. Yeah. Um, I have actually some photos yeah, I can yeah. bring up to show yeah, you. Yeah. I only have a couple sort of aerial views of what it looked like. Yeah. So it was a, just a vast, barren wasteland of shingle, tracks, motorbike tracks, car tracks, yeah. uh, and then this big concrete pillar, just pillbox, pillbox um, gun emplacement, just sitting there out in the middle of nowhere, um, surrounded by shingle, but then on the right-hand side towards the bridge, obviously there was a sharp drop down into the river, very similar to how it is today. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it looked very different. There were no trees, there were the odd little shrubs. Yeah. Um, but nothing that would restrict your view from that State Highway 1 to, to that gun emplacement? Because it would have been a busy road back then too, wouldn't it? Well, it would have been the main road. Yeah. The expressway mm. bridge wasn't there, so there was really only Brookfields Bridge, which is one lane. So well, the, the bridge that's there now, was that not the bridge that was used? Well, yes, that bridge, but that was one of the main routes. Oh, right. That... Um, yeah. There were only limited roads going yeah. across for people to get from Napier to Hastings, yeah. whereas now the expressway is the main route. Right, right, yeah, yeah. But yeah. before that, so that was a very busy road back then. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, I suppose the the thing that, the the um, I guess it comes down to at the end of the day, I mean, there's only, there's really only two possibilities, obviously, in, in my mind. There's one, obviously, that she's been taken against her will, or... I couldn't help but getting there and seeing that ocean right there, um, and it, it made me just think that sliver of a tiny chance, is there a possibility she could have tied her horse up and gone to clean herself or something? Um, and I, I know it sounds fanciful, but I, I, it's got to be considered possibly an option. But yeah, I mean, what are you able to tell me about, um, uh, can we talk about um, John Russell at all? Or? I don't know how much of that is public. I guess it's public knowledge, isn't it? I think some of it is public knowledge. Yeah. He publicly yeah. did admit killing her and then publicly renounced that. Okay. Um, so, yes, yeah, so you, you've asked a number of questions yeah, here. In yeah, relation yeah. to... Yes, I think a lot of consideration was given that she has fallen off her horse. She is hurt and injured somewhere that she tied the horse up, went down to the river to wash the blood off her face that we believe she had, or went down to the sea, and that was certainly looked at. Uh, high tide was, I think, an hour, or within an hour, an hour and a half of when she disappeared. Um, so by the time the search was underway, the tide was actually receding, so you would have had a lot of water coming out of the river I think that can be pretty much discounted through one major thing, and that is the fact that the horse was found wandering loose, but we know from reconstruction the horse had originally been tied up to the gun emplacement with about a three metre length of rope, yep. and it appears the horse is then bucked and pulled and eventually broke the rope and broken free. So half of the length of rope was found tied to the horse's bridle, the other half was still found tied to the gun placement. Um, and that rope is hugely significant because Cursor has never been seen with that rope. 
We don't know where it came from. It doesn't appear that rope had been just lying around on the beach. It wasn't soaked in salt. It didn't have any evidence of having been out in the open for any length of time on the foreshore. So we believe it's foreign to the scene. Someone brought that rope in and tied the rope horse up. The second thing is the knots that we used to tie were quite particular. They were just amateur notes. Cursor, from talking to everyone who knew her, was very particular. She knew how to tie the horse up. Even if she had fallen off and hurt herself, she would have used a proper knot. These knots were not something that a person who's familiar with horses would use. So we've got a foreign rope that doesn't belong there, tied with knots that a cursor would not use. So that puts another person there. Yeah. Yeah. And despite 40 years, no one has ever come forward and said, I tied that horse up. Mm. I know where that rope's from. Yeah. So that, to me, negates the fact that cursor has tied the horse up and walked away. It was not how she would do it. She would not have tied it there. She would not have used that knot. That's not what she would ever have done. She was very much into horses and the horse Commodore. You know, she loved that, the horse. Um, So that puts another person into that scene. And someone who, if Cursor had been there, she would have been the one to tie her own horse up. So where was she while her horse was being tied up? that's what makes this move from just a missing person who's fallen off their horse into a potential homicide foul play can we talk about um, are you comfortable to talk about the blood splatter on the and the sort of amount of it that was found Um, I guess that's important in terms of if say if she had hurt her nose or something like that is the amount of blood that was found would you say it was indicative of possibly that or maybe some other violent act no my understanding again as an overview the blood was sort of just splattered around as in droplets of blood um, consistent with someone who might have been bleeding or someone who's coughed and sprayed out blood it wasn't a serious injury with copious amounts of blood and we know from witnesses who saw her Earlier, she was seen by at least two separate people, four in total, saw her walking, leading her horse, which is unusual, heading towards a gun emplacement. And at least two of those people talk about having her hand to her face as she was walking. Various witnesses have seen her, because at high tide there is quite a big lagoon there at the bottom of the Tutakuri River, and there were people there in the lagoon fishing... Yeah, doing water sports. Um, also, the gun emplacement was quite a popular place for surfers. They would go to the gun emplacement because they could park close to the water's edge and either then walked over the shingle to the top of the shingle to look at the surf or they'd even climb, some of them even climb on top of the gun emplacement to look over the shingle mound to check the... W- and I'm assuming it's something to do with the rivers coming out. It seemed to be a really popular spot for surfers to go. So we had a number of people who were surfing or involved in water sports who were in that vicinity around that that time. And so the reports are Cursor was seen riding up the beach, heading south, away from Napier. She basically went all the way out along the spit of land to where the river mouth was, turned and was riding back. The next report is 
she was getting closer back towards the gun emplacement, which was further along, and she was walking, which is unusual for her to be actually walking, and at least two of them said she was holding her face and to them appeared to be injured. Yeah. So then we go to the horses found at Commodore, according. Commodore was found at the gun emplacement and there's droplets of blood around, consistent with someone who's had a fall and was bleeding. Yeah, okay, so that, it, that does make sense. It all sort of fits in. At this point, I'm sure you're likely thinking, okay, yes, I've heard all of this before. There's nothing new here. And well, I guess that's the point. Daryl is the one currently holding Curse's file. And even he admits that after 40 years, it's not as big as other homicides he's worked on. And this is because there really is just no evidence to go on in this case other than John Russell and the piece of rope. When I ask Daryl his thoughts on John Russell and whether he thinks it's a complete red herring, he says he's really not sure. But that his concern is how could John have seen what he said he saw, Cursor speaking to a balding man with a white truck, in the moments it took him to drive across the bridge a hundred metres away. I've driven the bridge, and I can say it's very open. You can see the emplacement. But I'll agree that he must have been paying particular attention to see enough to warrant turning around and coming all the way back. So he's done a loop around, he's come back out onto the main road, driven back towards the bridge and down the track to where um, the gun emplacement is. When he got there, he has located Cursor standing there next to her horse. Uh, She was bleeding from her face and he asked her if she was all right. She said she was and that someone had already stopped to help her and that person had gone to get help for her to go and get, I assume, her parents. So he said, "Okay, everything's good. So he then did a U-turn, drove back out onto the main road. But instead of turning right towards Napier, he decided now, I don't need to go to Napier anyway. I'm going to go back home to where I live in Wakatu. And he's turned left and gone back across the bridge and back um, through Clive. Right. And so, I mean, I guess he volunteered all that information about where he went and that's just yes. what he said that day. Yeah. Yes. So it does raise a number of questions about his, um, what he saw, what he did, why he did it. Um, but taking him at face value, then we are of interest We really want to know who this person was in the white ute that pulled up there. However, by John Russell's own admissions, by the time he got back and spoke to Cursor, this person had actually left. Mm. Um, He wasn't unknown to the police either, was he? No. Yeah. No. So, um, yes. So, he became... He moved very quickly from being a witness to a person of interest for the police. But unfortunately, despite, well, fortunately, but despite a lot of work by the police, 
looking at him, there was no way they could get close to having enough to say he is responsible for her disappearance. Um, one thing I was just thinking, do you, I mean, I guess you might not know, but I'm just thinking, I mean, we know that obviously the witness, the other witnesses said she had an injury to her face and he seems to have corroborated that, so that could have, that he can tie in. But had that already gone on the media or anything, had that been released at that point? Could he have known it some other way? Or, you know, I because... I can't recall timings, but I would say pretty much with quite a lot of certainty that no, he would not have known because those other witnesses... Remember, in those first 24 hours, it was assumed she'd fallen off her horse, she was injured somewhere, and someone had found the horse and tied it up. Yeah. It really was 24 hours before people went, we're not finding her. How did the horse get tied up? We've now got John Russell telling us the story about this other man. I think that's when alarm bells, possibly the next morning, that suddenly there's something not right here. Yeah. So at the time he was initially spoken to, we hadn't really spoken to other people. We hadn't really been... We were only just starting to do publicity. And it was over the next few weeks that more and more information came in, including speaking to all these surfers who then gave us this information. Same story. So, I mean, it sounds like he did see Cursor that day, at the very least. You know, at face value, he, he seems to have actually seen her. I would accept at face value, it is probable he did speak to her. For the detail he was able to give about her, the fact she was injured. On that route, he says that he suddenly decided to go to Napier and purchase something, I think from a garden centre. He was suddenly had this thought. That's when he drove through Clive and carried on to Napier, saw Cursor, drove back round, spoke to Cursor, Decided he didn't need to go to the garden club and drove back through Clive and went home. From the time that he left Havelock North and the time we estimate he got home from talking to neighbours, family and his own admissions, then we drive that route. We can sort of put a timeline and I think at the moment... If there's any time missing, it wouldn't be more than about 20 minutes. So there possibly is 20 minutes of his time we can't account for. Yeah, not a lot of time though, is it? No. And then, so part of the team inquiry looked at, if he was at the gun emplacement, what did he do with those 20 minutes? How far could he have walked or how far could he have driven? Bearing in mind he could only have gone a maximum of 10 minutes because he had to get back. Right. And then that was areas that were of particular interest to the police inquiry as the months went by as to where could he have got to, how far could he have gone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 10 minutes. At the most. In which John would have had to lure Cursor into his car, murder her, and dispose of her body. All without being seen. And I guess the obvious question, um, DNA, in this day and age, is it has anything, have you guys gone back over and, and checked things like the rope or anything like that in this time? Um, so that's something I have on my to-do list is to do yet another review of the DNA but I'm I have the my gut feeling is it's not going to take us anywhere Uh, it was reviewed in 2016 Um, Detective Sergeant Lynch did a review went to sat down with ESR and went through all the exhibits they had and looked at what was our possibilities of doing more advanced DNA tests The problem you have, and there's no criticism of any of the staff working on the inquiry, but DNA wasn't something that was around in those days. So the wearing of gloves, wearing of face masks, booties, the thought of how we transport suspects and exhibits today, we need to keep them well apart. I know from the file that when they found the rope, it was picked up, it was put in a bag, it was taken into town, it was shown to various shops, do you sell this rope? It was shown to various people. Nothing is recorded on paper, but my gut feeling would be back in 1983, the officers probably weren't wearing gloves. They weren't, we don't know if the police vehicle used to carry that rope around could have also been used when they picked up and delivered other people as well. Other people, so the, the possibility of cross-examination is huge. That even if I was to examine the rope and find John Russell's DNA on the rope, I don't think we could sit back and have any confidence that there hadn't been cross-contamination. This is a good point to touch on. Not just for this case, but when thinking of all cases 30 plus years ago. In New Zealand, and most of the world for that matter, DNA was in its infancy, or non-existent. And no one could have foreseen how its eventual importance would completely rewrite police procedure when it comes to the chain of evidence and risk of cross-contamination. DNA is not necessarily the silver bullet in every case. And even if it were detected, it would be extremely difficult from a legal point of view to prove that it hadn't arrived where it did by some other means. If there's anyone out there listening to this right now, I mean, and they did have any information, what would you say to those people? What what should they do? Well, if they haven't already come forward with information and they think they have some information of value, then ring 105 and pass the information on and just say it's in relation to the Cursor Jensen matter. And that will be forwarded to me, and we will look at it and consider it in conjunction with everything else we have in this investigation. As of right now, you know everything of importance in the disappearance 
of Cursa Jensen. As far as I'm aware, this isn't one of those cases where the police have held back important evidence from the public. From the early weeks, they laid everything on the table in an effort to break the case. So what to make of it? The way I see it, there are really only two options. We either believe John Russell, or we don't. If we choose not to believe his story, well then, he must be responsible for Curse's disappearance. He provided details about her injury to her face before this information was available to the public. He had to have seen her that day. And if that's the answer, then the story really ends there. John Russell took his own life many years ago after a long struggle with mental illness. But I suggest we explore option two. That we take John Russell's account at face value. That however strange it may seem, he did see Cursor speaking to a man in a white ute. Thought it was suspicious and drove back. Spoke to Cursor and then left. Let's break this down. First, the man in the white ute. John Russell states that by the time he had made the loop back to the gun emplacement, this man had gone, and Cursor was there alone. And at this point, the horse hadn't been tied up. Cursor speaks to John, and appears to be making light of the fact her nose might have been broken. John says it looks like Cursor had been trying to clean herself up. We assume from the blood from her nose, which was found spattered behind the gun emplacement. John then leaves. So for our purposes of option two, he's now out of the picture. So what happens next? What could have caused Cursor to completely vanish without a trace? I want to present another possible scenario that has been mentioned but largely dismissed. And while I'm not saying that this is what happened, I'm saying it would be remiss of us not to consider it. And that's the water. When I visited the site of the former gun emplacement, I couldn't help but be drawn to the waves only metres away. New Zealand is known for its beautiful beaches with gentle, sandy slopes, perfect for swimming. Napier Beach is not one of these, particularly the location Cursor was last seen, at the exit of the river mouth. The beach itself consists of stones and a steep slope. There are signs all along the beach advising people not to swim. It's renowned for wicked rips, and the sudden drop-off only metres out into the surf. So when Mick Cull mentioned his staff saw Tooth prints right up to the water's edge. This immediately piqued my interest, but still left me thinking, how is that really possible? I can understand Cursor perhaps in shallow water washing her face, but to go swimming, that I just can't see. But what if she didn't have to? 
What if she could have been swept away without even being in the water? I was contacted recently on my Instagram by a listener from the area, who unfortunately I've been unable to follow up for an interview. But this is what she said. I heard the detective in the earlier episode dismiss this possibility, but I can personally guarantee that the seas around this area are tremendously perilous. In 1998, I was almost taken out to sea and I was only standing at the water's edge. I had barely stepped my toes into the water when out of nowhere a huge gush of water surged forward and I could feel my knees get pushed back and then again. If it wasn't for the quick thinking of my partner, losing his good camera in the process, I'd have been swept out. Long story short, I consider myself lucky. I'm sure your other listeners from the area will be able to confirm the presence of a horrible rip in the area she disappeared. When I read this, it really threw me. Can a person really be swept away in ankle-deep water? No sooner than I'd read this, a news story broke about two people on the exact same beach in Napier being swept away by a rogue wave. They were fully clothed and weren't even in the water. Miraculously, they were saved with a dramatic helicopter rescue. But I decided I needed to find out from locals. So I posted on the Napier Community Facebook page, asking for those that had experienced this rogue wave type phenomenon in this area. And within minutes, the comments and messages flooded in. One after the other. Dozens and dozens of people, each sharing very similar experiences. Walking along the beach, then suddenly swept away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Literally, man. Like I was, uh, I was walking out there. Um, probably it was, it would have been up to my knees if that day. Um, and uh, yeah, this massive wave came out, swept me out, and uh, just took me out. I drowned. Uh, lucky, uh, my mate was with me. Um, he had to give me CPR for bloody forty minutes, eh, before the um, choppers arrived and stuff. And then I was sent to hospital, put in a coma for bloody three days, and very lucky, very lucky to be here. And then we were kind of in the middle of these two waves, and when the waves come together and joined, it kind of pulled me off my feet. And then in, and then in we went. I just was lucky enough to have my little cousin on the beach, and I yelled out to him to go and get help. And he ran up, he ran up, went to the first house, knocked on the door, and the lady came down. By then, we were kind of bobbing out already. So what, how deep, you know, was the water where you got swept out from? Are we talking like knee deep, waist deep? Oh, no, we were right out. Like, we, we got oh. the Coast Guard to pick us both up, um, and we had a helicopter come in to get my friend because she'd been in the water for so maybe a half an hour to an hour before I actually got in. Yeah, I mean, sorry, when you actually got swept out, you know, from up on the beach, you know, when the wa- oh, when yes. the wave took you, how shallow was it there? Oh, no, like ankle, like An- pretty ankle. much ankle. Because you, you know when the beach comes up and it goes like kind of thin? Yeah. Yeah, well, it come up and then when it went back down, that's where, all the, that's where pretty much all the force came from. Like when the two waves pretty much met each other and then went out, I, yeah, I was gone. And we were just like 
I was just sitting. I was kneeling. I was kneeling right at the water's edge. I really wasn't even in the water. I was just kneeling there. And then all of a sudden, this wave just got me. Now, it shot me out so fast and the dumpers, I can still hear the dumpers in my ears. And I was going up and down and up and down. And the and I panicked because I wasn't a strong swimmer. Yeah. I didn't know what was happening. And I um, I remember, you know, that boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 in my ears and then I could hear when I would come up I could hear people around me yelling out tread water I didn't even know what treading water was mm. and um, then all of a sudden there was this guy there and he sort of grabbed hold of me and um, we went out further he said to me I won't let you go and and we went out past and like I seemed to be so far out but it was still and he explained to me that he would get me back in and I would be all right and I just had to to trust him uh like I was an absolute shaking mess I uh, you know I can still it makes me shake to think about I'm still quite scared of the sea now if you were there do you think no one saw what do you think would have happened oh I'd have been I'd have drowned these are a few of the lucky ones So many haven't been so lucky. Since 1996, seven people have died on Marine Parade in Napier, which is the same stretch of beach Cursor was last seen. In 2020, Water Safety NZ analysed these drownings and found that what is common among these events is the force of the sea at Marine Parade and how quickly it can take a life. Several of the drowning victims were not even intending to be in the water, but were swept away by rogue waves while at the water's edge. So is it possible that after speaking to John Russell, Cursor then made her way down to the water's edge to clean her face before heading home? And while bent over in shallow water, she was swept away by a rogue wave and carried out in the rip. Remember Mick Cull told us that this was exactly what was assumed up until John Russell came forward and injected himself into the investigation. According to Mick, the dive team was literally on its way, but was called off once it was determined that Cursor had been seen alive at the emplacement. Had John never come forward, it's quite possible it would have remained a tragic drowning. But of course, then we have the rope. And the way in which Commodore was tied to the emplacement. In order for the rogue wave theory to be plausible, we would need to accept that Cursor was given the rope, perhaps by the man in the white ute. She then could have tied him to the emplacement briefly while she went back to the water. One witness claims to have seen a matching white ute with rope on the back in the vicinity. Are we reading into the way the horse was tied too much? If she intended to only briefly wash herself, then is it plausible she might have just quickly tied him this way? Or there's the alternate scenario, that Cursor led Commodore to the water while she washed her face. She was swept away by a rogue wave, and someone else, who was not a horse person, saw him wandering 
and tied him up. But for whatever reason, never came forward. Possibly, and quite reasonably, out of the fear that they may have the finger pointed at them in what had become one of the biggest cases in New Zealand history. This is all speculation, of course. But like I said, it's something that really cannot be 100% ruled out. And if it were the case that Cursor was tragically swept out to sea by a rogue wave, then the complete lack of any evidence in this case would now make perfect sense. Over these last five episodes, I feel we've covered about everything there is to cover in this case. I've exhausted every available avenue. And aside from the possible water theory, there really isn't anything solid to lead in any other direction. If there was a definition of a cold case, this would be it. But one thing that has become very clear to me is what this 40-year investigation has meant to the people involved. From former detective Ian Hollyoak to current detective Daryl Moore, this case has never been without someone there, behind the scenes, quietly turning the wheels, on the hope that something might give. This year, on September 1st, it will mark 40 years since 14-year-old Cursor Jensen tragically disappeared. And as they do every year, former detectives Ian Hollyoke and Ross Pinkham will meet at Cursor's memorial beside the old gun emplacement. You'll find them there, pulling the weeds and tending to the site. And as the waves crash on the rocky shore, they'll be standing there quietly, paying their respects to another young life taken far too soon. Guilt Untold Stories is a Brevity Studios production. Written, narrated and produced by me, Ryan Wolf. You'll find daily photos and videos related to this and all my podcasts at my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ. And I encourage you to join the discussion with over 1,200 other listeners on our Facebook group, The Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Remember, this podcast is meant to be a more raw, unedited style than my other investigative podcast, Guilt. Next week, we'll be starting the five-part series on the tragic death of Lachlan Jones. This has been transferred across from the main Guilt podcast. If you haven't listened to Guilt, then I highly suggest you check it out as the biggest season to date is now live and I've uncovered new witnesses and fresh evidence in the murder of Swedish tourists Heidi Parkinen and Urban Hoglin in New Zealand in 1983. This podcast has been written and edited without the use of AI.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.